right and wrong, distinguishing between good and bad. So whoever witnesses this month or whoever is present during this month, then let them fast in this month. Subhanahu wa ta'ala is what he said. So the first of the things that makes Ramadan special is, of course, the obligation of fasting in it, right? Uh, sometimes, perhaps it's good to note here that whatever it is that we do, we do it for Allah. This is going to sound very basic, but you'll see why it's an important point. Whatever it is that we do, we do it for Allah. And we do it because we're seeking the reward from Allah. So if Allah tells us to fast, we fast. If Allah tells us not to fast, we don't fast. Allah tells us this is a special month, the Ramadan, the Qur'an was revealed in it. It's a special month, the Qur'an was revealed in it. And He tells us, subhanahu, how to worship in that month. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that this is the month the Qur'an was revealed in it, so let the person fast. And we have the first uh, characteristic of the month is that it's a month of fasting. So how do we, in a sense, celebrate? And the Prophet وسلم, was asked about, uh, you know, he talked about his birthday, وسلم, the day that he was born on, uh, which was a Monday. And he said, that's a day that I fasted. So there's a sense of like, this is part of how we celebrate in a sense, quote unquote. If I'm going to acknowledge something, if I'm going to celebrate something, I do extra acts of worship in it. I glorify Allah, I pray, I fast, so on and so forth. So we fast in Ramadan because Allah told us to fast. And we fast in Ramadan, in a sense, out of, you can say, celebration of the Qur'an being revealed. Because this is, of course, a major thing. Qur'an being revealed is a major thing. If we're not from the category of people who should be fasting in Ramadan, that doesn't mean that we don't have a Ramadan. Because during, we, we, we start the fast for Allah, we break the fast for Allah. If we don't start the fast at all, because we're not supposed to, Maybe we have a health condition, specifically. Maybe a person has a health condition that makes it so it's very difficult for them to fast. If they fast, it's going to be harmful for them. Then we don't fast. And we didn't fast for the same reason that we would have fasted. Okay? So this is an important uh, issue. Sometimes people go into Ramadan, they almost become uh, worshippers of fasting instead of worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we break the fast, and this is why part of the sunnah, which will come later, Part of the recommended acts of fasting is that we eat up until when we're supposed to start our fast, and when we're supposed to stop our fast, we stop eating. Right? So all of it is ta'ah. All of it is obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, we already know that fasting is one of the five pillars of Islam. It's one of the most important deeds. It's a foundational deed in Islam. And uh, fasting is a, is, a, is a wonderful act of worship. It doesn't talk about it here so much, but... Uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about fasting, what does he say? There's two major points. He says that this fasting, that this fasting was given to you, was prescribed upon you, as it was prescribed upon people before you. So we know from this that fasting is not an act of worship that is unique to the Muslims in a sense. The Muslims, I meaning the followers of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, after his message came. Previous Prophets, of course, in a sense are still Muslims, but they also have fasting. You might find fasting in other religious traditions. You might find fasting amongst other people. In fact, if you look across the world and you look at different religions and stuff, you'll almost universally find fasting. Allahu Maybe they had originally like true Prophets 
Maybe they had different things, but you always find fasting. Maybe there's water, maybe there's not. Maybe there's several days where it happens rather than one day, whatever it is. But you'll always find this fasting. And there's kind of like this understanding amongst people that in order to enhance ourselves spiritually, we have to, in a sense, limit ourselves physically. And this, the spiritual masters in the, in the Muslim tradition always talked about this, not only in fasting, by the way, but that the person also, if they want to improve themselves spiritually, they will speak less. If they want to improve themselves spiritually, they'll eat less, even if they're not fasting. Or if they, you know, or if they want to improve themselves spiritually, they'll uh, sleep less. Right? So all of these are ways by which we're lessening from the physical demands of the human being, so that we can begin to under, we can begin to pay attention to what is the spiritual quality of the human being. As uh, the American Muslim poet Brother Ali said, that he, he said that I don't have a soul. I am a soul that has a body. I don't have a soul, I am a soul that has a body, right? So people will say that, like common American things, and, you know, someone's who has soul, this person has soul, so on and so forth. He says, I don't have a soul, I, I am a soul, and I have a body. Because what is the primary consideration? Is it the consideration of the soul? The soul is dominant. So when we do our fasting, part of what we're doing in our fasting is we're limiting this physical desire. And we're limiting this physical need and we're trying to discipline it at some level so that the spiritual quality of the human being can be dominant over the physical quality. Right? And we do this in a number of different acts of worship, but fasting is actually uh, very, very strong in that regard. So number one is the specialties of the month is that we fast in the month. Number two, thing that's special about the month is Nuzul al-Qur'an that this is the month when the Qur'an was revealed uh, there's different kind of interpretations as to what this even means. Okay, so I'll read to you one of them, which is the opinion of Ibn Abbas As you know, uh, Ibn Abbas he's one of the senior companions of the Prophet in terms of knowledge, not necessarily in terms of age, and not necessarily even at the time of the Prophet that he was so senior, but he gained knowledge afterwards. Ibn Abbas being uh, the son of Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet so that makes him the Prophet's cousin, right? Of course, there's a significant age difference between them, about 50 years. Because the Prophet died when he was how old? 63. 63. And Ibn Abbas was about 13 when the Prophet died. So there's a significant age difference, and yet uh, he was known to be a person of tremendous knowledge, a person of tremendous learning. The Prophet prayed for him, to have, uh, he, he prayed for him, Allahumma alimu ta'wil wa fin deen. Oh Allah, give him the ability to understand and interpret and give him deep knowledge of the religion. And he had a very close relationship with him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa radiallahu This continued after the death of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. After the death of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, some of the Sahaba, they uh, really took seriously the gaining of knowledge from the other Sahaba. So if you're Ibn Abbas and you're young, you're able to spend time seeking this knowledge from the other senior companions. So you may not get it directly from the Prophet but you can get it directly from Abu Bakr, which is the same almost. You can get it from Sayyidina Umar, you can get it from so-and-so, you can get it from so-and-so. So he begins to become very knowledgeable, ta'ala to the extent that in the time of Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Umar made Ibn Abbas, uh, or he allowed him to be one of the people who sits in his council. 
So Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, they had a council of the senior Sahaba who when issues arise, when they need shura and so on, they would bring these people together and they would take their advice. So Ibn Abbas was among those people. And uh, some people thought that was strange, right? Because you have all these elderly people, then you have Ibn Abbas. And uh, so Sayyidina Umar, he wanted to show them one day that you know there's a reason for this, because they used to ask him. So one day he asked them about the interpretation of When the victory of Allah comes and the opening, what does it mean? So the Sahaba who were in that gathering, they gave different opinions. And uh, afterwards he asked Ibn Abbas, he said, what do you think? Ibn Abbas said, uh, I, I think that this means that the death of the Prophet was imminent. That when these verses were revealed, the death of the Prophet was very near. And so Sayyidina Umar affirmed him and he said, this is why he's in the gathering. So he has deep understanding of the religion. He understood something you guys didn't understand. And this, at this time, he's probably still young because the rule of Sayyidina Abu Bakr was two and a half years, right? So from the begin in the beginning of Sayyidina Umar's rule, he's probably about 15, 16, and Sayyidina Umar rules for 10 years. So he's 15, 16 to about 25, 26. He's known to be one of the great scholars of the Qur'an, actually. And he's one of the great reference points in understanding tafsir, specifically. That if you want to know what does this verse mean, what does it not mean, then you go to the opinion of Ibn Abbas, All of this is an introduction, number one, and a little bit of storytelling to wake you up a little bit. Uh, want to try this? Okay, click this off. Okay. It's like a double click. It's two mics, but you can click it. Okay. Uh, I say this also to make a point about Ibn Abbas, that Ibn Abbas was very patient in his seeking of knowledge. You know, we try to make things as interesting as possible, we try to make them as beneficial as possible, but in the end, seeking knowledge requires patience. So we have to uh, work a little bit, inshallah. There's a beautiful story of Ibn Abbas that he was going to uh, Zayd ibn Thabit, who's also one of the knowledgeable companions of the Prophet and he was going to him to get information from him to learn about the hadith, to learn about different opinions and um, as he was leaving Ibn Abbas took the reins of his animal right? and he started to kind of like help him get on the animal and hold the reins to the animal and stuff and uh, he said, what are you doing? You know, like how, uh, he felt shy, right? That he's, this person, the cousin of the Prophet is doing this to him, right? Zayd ibn Thabit, uh, Zayd ibn Thabit, I'm sorry, Zayd ibn Thabit. So he said to him, uh, Ibn Abbas said to him, He said, this is how we were commanded to deal with our scholars. So you're a person of knowledge, it's how we're deal commanded to deal with our scholars. So as he, 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 so Zayd took his hand and he kissed his hand. And he said, He said, this is how we were commanded to deal with the family of our Prophet It's a beautiful story. Ibn Abbas used to also, they say, he would go to the homes of the other Sahaba that he wanted to get knowledge from. He'd sit outside their home, wait for them to come out. This is what they used to do. Right? There's no technology, there's no, how do you find the person, how do you... If you want to find the person, you want to get knowledge from them, they literally go and wait outside their home. 
And they know that when their prayer time comes or whatever else it might be, they'll leave their home and then they can walk with them, they can talk to them, so on. So uh, this is Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhu. He said, Unzil al-Qur'an jumlatan wahidatan min al-lawh al-mahfudhi fi laylat al-qadri min shanir al-Ramadan. Fawudi'a fi bayt al-izzati fi samaa al-dunya thumma nazala bihi Jibreel ala Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam munajjaman ay mufarraqan bihasb al-waqa'i fi thalathin wa ishirina sana. So this is probably one of the more well-known positions on what does it mean when we say, when Allah says that this is the month of Ramadan, where the, wherein the Qur'an was revealed, what does it mean? This is a question you should be asking, right? Like, wait a second. The Qur'an was revealed in Ramadan, but basic knowledge of the life of the Prophet them is what? Do you see, what, what's the issue? You can, you can speak, what's the issue? Years it was revealed over years, right? So if, if the verse is saying that the Qur'an was revealed in Ramadan, but we know that the Qur'an was taught to the companions and revealed to the Prophet them over 23 years. So how do we reconcile these statements? This is, this is the question that should be coming in the person's mind, right? This is, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this religion is a religion of knowledge. So we think of ourselves, okay, there's an issue here. So basically, there's, there's, you can probably think of it, there's a couple ways to reconcile this. One of them is what Ibn Abbas says, Obviously, this is not just a matter of you come up with whatever you feel like. You should have some sort of mustanid uh, for it. You should have some sort of backing for it. Ibn Abbas, uh, which I'll comment on in a second, he said the following. He said the Qur'an was revealed in one shot to Allah al-Mahfud. Allah al-Mahfud. Allah al-Mahfud is like, I don't know what you should call it, the sacred tablet. You know, in the celestial realm, it's not in this realm. And uh, then in the month of Ramadan, on the night of Qadr, on Laylatul Qadr, on the night of Qadr, it was revealed in one go in the month of Ramadan. Then it was placed in Bayt al Izza, fi Sama'a al Dunya. Sama'a, you know, in the different narrations, for example, about the night journey and ascension of the Prophet, there's this idea of these different levels of heaven that he passed through. So it says, then this uh, Qur'an in its entirety came to the lowest heaven. Okay? Then it was revealed uh, by way of Jibreel, salam, Angel Jibreel, to the Prophet وسلم, in pieces over 23 years. This is what Ibn Abbas says. This type of narration, it's a side point, but it's an important side point. This is a particular type of narration in Hadith. Okay. So when we say a hadith, what are we referring to? Anyone? What's a hadith? It's told by the Prophet. Told by the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Anyone else? Things he did. Things he did, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Anyone else? Didn't Allah speak to him too? Like the Allah spoke to him too in, in the hadith Qudsi, okay. That's good too. Mm-hmm. What else? But he still spoke it. Right? So it kind of falls under the brother's point too. So the general definition of hadith is something that the Prophet did, said, approved of, his physical descriptions, and his character descriptions. This is a hadith. Okay? Five things. Things that he did, things that he said, things that he approved of, his physical descriptions 
in his character descriptions. So things that he did is very simple, you know. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I don't know. I mean, uh, when he made the opening takbir of salat, he raised his hands and he said Allahu Akbar. This is what he did, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is one. Also, the things that he said, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he said uh, many different things. Um, actions are by intentions. He said this, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it's a statement. Third category is things he approved of, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Meaning, something happened in front of him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he didn't say, "You can't do that." So this is actually a type of information we take from the Prophet because his, the rule for the Prophet is that his job is to clarify halal from haram. So if something happens in front of him and he doesn't say anything, you can assume that it's permissible because he, otherwise he would have to say something. Okay, so this is the third category. Fourth category is uh, physical descriptions. So the Prophet's hair often reached to the lower part of his earlobe or between his earlobe and to his shoulders. He would split his hair, sometimes in half, sometimes he would just leave it. He had a beard that was very long and very thick. He had very piercing eyes. Uh, he had broad shoulders. He, his hands were strong, but they were soft. All of these are physical descriptions. The fifth category is character descriptions. So, um, for example, it's said about the Prophet them that uh, he would never become angry for his for him out of his own self. It's not personal. If he becomes angry, he's not angry for personal reasons. He's angry because one of the boundaries of Allah has been infringed upon. And if that was the case, then nothing's going to cool his anger until the situation is dealt with. This is a description of his character. Okay? So these are all issues of hadith. Now here we have this statement from Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala is this a hadith? what do you think? Ibn Abbas is saying the Quran was revealed from uh, in the night of Laylatul Qadr in Ramadan it came to the Doha al-Mahfud from there it came to Bayt al-Izzah then it came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam over 23 years is this a hadith? is it not a hadith? Okay. So maybe his interpretation, it's possible that it's a hadith, okay? It depends how he knows. Exactly. It depends how he knows. So usually this kind of narration, they would consider this to be something that's called marfu'ah hukman. Marfu'ah means it's actually connected to the Prophet himself. And in contradiction or to a narration which you would call malquf, which means that it reached to the Sahabi, but it didn't reach to the Prophet okay? But there are things that are said either by the Sahaba or done by the Sahaba, usually said in this case, that it's not possible for them to have said that from their own whims. Okay? So like, so this piece of information right here that Ibn Abbas is saying, is it possible that he knows that just from himself? It's not, right? Like he, he can't know that himself. <laughs> we, like if someone's in the masjid right now and they're just like, you know, what happened is that the Quran was revealed to Loh al-Mahfuz. We didn't have this narration. They just said that. We're like, okay, where did you get that from, right? 
You have to have some basis for that. You can't just say, you know, it's like you just assume, you would actually assume the person's crazy. If they came and they're like, you know, this happened and that happened, and you'd be like, what do you mean? You don't know that. From the Sahaba, especially people like Ibn Abbas, if he says something like this, that means he got it from the Prophet So even though it's not technically marfur, in the sense that it doesn't technically raise to the Prophet it is in the category of being connected to the Prophet because he couldn't have said it from his own opinion. It's marfur hukman. Are you following what I'm saying? <laughs> this is a little hadith sciences point. The whole hadith sciences thing needs its own conversation, but it's just a small, yeah, I mean, a So this is what he said, radiallahu uh, ta'ala, about this, uh, about this phenomenon. So number number two is that special thing about Ramadan is that the Quran is revealed in it. Number three special thing about Ramadan, jannati wa khayri fi. The, the doors of good and the doors of paradise are flung open in the month of Ramadan. So the Prophet he said, uh, So he said, famous hadith that people always mention in Ramadan, that when the month of Ramadan comes, the doors of paradise are flung open, and the doors of hellfire are slammed shut, and the shayateen are chained up. Shaitans are chained up. Uh, of course, there's going to be different interpretations on what this means. You're going to have people are going to have questions because again, it raises a question: Don't we know people, and don't we know ourselves? Sometimes we're inspired to do things that are not good, or we we lean to do things that are not good in Ramadan, or maybe if they're not even not good, we just don't have the himman, we don't have the ambition to do things that we probably should do. Or if it's not us, we know other people for sure who do things in Ramadan that are not okay, right? Like, it's, there's no question. <laughs> Ramadan comes, we're in San Diego, there's a bunch of people who are Muslims who are doing totally haram things in Ramadan. There's not a question about it. It's absolutely true, observable reality, right? But the Prophet ﷺ said that the doors of paradise are open and the doors of hellfire are closed and the shayateen are chained up. So how do we understand it? What do you think? You can exercise a little bit of your opinion in this. Yeah. I feel you can't blame shaitan for anything. It's all coming from you. Okay, so you can't blame shaitan for anything. It's all coming from you. Alright. There's multiple components for an action, right? So okay. some of them are driven from your love, some of them are outside influences. Some so portion of the influence from the other someone So it could be from something other than shaitan. Right? Could be your nafs, could be other things. Yeah. Okay, good. Anyone else? Habits. Habits, okay. This is also related to nafs. This is one of the uh, main interpretations. Is that you see bad things happening because bad things don't only happen because of shaitan. And a lot of times actually, if you know, it's, it, it behooves us as Muslims to learn to pay attention to ourselves. And our own internal motivations, our own internal tendencies. And one thing that we'll notice if we do that is that sometimes what happens is that the door opens because of our nafs. Our nafs is our base self, okay? It's our base self. It can be refined to become higher, to become good. The Prophet said, 
that nobody truly believes until their desires align with what I brought. So the self can be developed, that's the process of Tazkiyatun Nafs, the development of the self, uh, so that it can be better. But we do have selfish desires, you know, whatever, whatever they might be. Sometimes it's for power, sometimes it's for relationships, sometimes it's uh, wealth, sometimes it's whatever it might be, right? We have selfish desires. And what happens sometimes is that the door opens through the nafs and shaitan takes advantage. Take it to a whole different level. Uh, but we have these different inclinations. So there's a number of possibilities. Number one possibility is what you all mentioned. That people are doing things that are not good, not because of shaitan, but because of themselves. You can't blame shaitan for everything. This is a problem actually we have in our community. Is that we tend to blame shaitan for everything. Actually we should blame ourselves first. If we have some sort of like really clear reason to blame shaitan, fine, you can blame shaitan, make your dhikr, pray, do whatever you need to do. But the first assumption should be, There's, this is me. I need to deal with this, this is me. Don't put it off on someone else. This is me. Uh, so this is the first point. Second possibility is, some scholars said that it means that the shayateen have levels. The major shayateen were chained up, the minor ones weren't. Laman. I'm not personally lean towards that interpretation. Third interpretation is that the meaning of this is based on the person's observance of the month. So the person who fasts and they take it seriously and they worship and they pray and they do all of these things, for this person, this is true. And for the person who doesn't do those things, then it's not true for them. All of these are mentioned by Isa ibn Abdus Salam, Rahimullah, is one of the great uh, kind of like scholars of the middle period. Um, actually, they comment on it here. The, the work that I'm referencing and reading from, just for your, your personal uh, knowledge, is uh, a book called uh, Kitab al-Siyam, that's uh, published by Dar Iftad Masriya, by the House of Fatwa in Egypt. It's just a book on fasting and its rules and so on. Um, perhaps it's necessary to comment. There's a lot of questions oftentimes in the community around Al-Azhar, around Dar al-Iftat, that come as a result of some of the positions that are taken officially. So uh, I don't want to make too much of a comment on this, but it's kind of important. Um, first of all, Dar al-Iftat and Al-Azhar are two separate institutions. Okay, so Dar al-Iftat is the house of fatwa. Al-Azhar is Al-Azhar. They're two separate institutions. They have their own leadership, they have their own things. They're both at some level under the government. They both have people who hold official positions within the institutions and people who are in the institutions but maybe don't have like certain titles and stuff. Uh, oftentimes, official positions and certain things can be influenced by the government and so you'll find fatawa that are just kind of like off. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire institution is off. So, you know, just, that's just a side point. Anyways, so they say here, what if, what if that, uh, they mentioned some of the, some of the possibilities here. Uh, it's a beautiful phrase. Uh, some of these things are very hard to translate, but I'm gonna read this phrase because it's very beautiful. It says, Ramadan, 
ومن ذلك ورد من قوله صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم إذا كان أول ليلة من رمضان فتحت أبواب الجنان كلها ولا لا يغلق منها باب واحد الشهر كله وغلقت أبواب النار فلم يفتح منها باب واحد وغلت عنات الشياطين عتات الشياطين سوري ونادى مناد في السماء الدنيا كل ليلة إلى انفجار صبح يا باغي الخير هلم يا باغي الشر انتهي هل من مستغفر فيغفر ذنب هل من تائب فيتاب عليه هل من سائر فيعتى سؤله هل من داعي داع فيستجاب له ولله عز وجل عند وقت فطر كل ليلة من رمضان اعتقاء يعتقون من النار It's a beautiful narration says that the Prophet said, uh, or they open by saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen the nights of Ramadan as very special nights. And these are nights that are filled with connections to the divine. They are nights that are filled with divine breezes. In a sense, there's this idea that like, Allah is descending His blessings. His blessings are falling in these nights. It's like, it's like a rain in the unseen of blessings and gifts and openings and opportunities to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the, in, in that context, Allah looks in a sense upon His servants and they have an opportunity to look to Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in that context, the Prophet sallallahu says that the doors of paradise are opened and the doors of hellfire are closed and the people are, uh, people are freed from the fire. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, it's, it's said, O oh, you who wants good, come forth. O oh, you who does bad, stay away from it. Is there not anyone who will seek forgiveness so that they will be forgiven? Is there not anyone who turns back so they can be turned to? Is there not anyone who will ask so that they will be answered? And then and every time when the person breaks their fast, uh, there are people who are freed from the fire. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanahu wa So it's a beautiful narration. Point is to uh, try to capitalize on these moments. It's a very, very blessed moments. We ask Allah to give us tawfiq. Number four is that the month of Ramadan has the blessing of being part of it is the night of Laylatul Qadr. Laylatul Qadr. Right? I should probably move a little bit faster. There's 150 pages. We've gone through 10. Uh, Laylatul Qadr is one of the special nights. Obviously, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about Laylatul Qadr that it is equivalent to Al-Fishab. It's equivalent to a thousand months. A thousand months. Uh, again, you know, some of these things are hard to understand if we don't understand it in light of our journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If we understand it in light of our journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this is the journey of the soul, it's the developing of the heart, it's the heart is taking its provision for its journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for its journey in the hereafter, then you can understand it. Otherwise, people start doing really weird things. You know, okay, well, if Laylatul Qadr, the night of Qadr is equal to, uh, I don't, uh, people translate it oftentimes as power, right? It's one potential translation, but Qadr is actually a difficult word to translate in that way. Because it can mean power, it can also mean uh, restriction. Say one Qadr like in um, Surah Al-Fajr, right? What is it? If Allah tests the person and limits, constrains their risk. Right? So this is actually Laylatul Qadr can also be a night of constraint. They say, why? Because the universe is filled with so many angels, but there's not a single space that's left open. 
So it's completely, the, the, the existence is constrained in a sense by the presence of all of these angels. So anyways, on the night of Qadr, it's a thousand nights. So people will come and they're like, well then I don't have to pray for my whole life. And then I'm just going to pray my five, I'm going to pray my Salat on the night of Qadr. And it's going to be a thousand months, it's 83 years, I don't have to pray a single Madrib my entire life. I'll just pray Madrib on Laylatul Qadr, and I'll just pray Asha on Laylatul Qadr, and I'll pray Fajr on Laylatul Qadr, inshallah, hopefully it'll be part of the Layl somehow, and we'll just be done with it. Right? So people start doing weird stuff like this. Uh, our relationship with Allah is not a matter of mathematics. It's not a matter of like checking off boxes, and you can do that if you want to push yourself, hold yourself accountable, that's fine. But our relationship with Allah is not about boxes and numbers and check this thing off and do that thing and if you do this, you're automatically good and if you do this, you're automatically bad. No. It's a matter of a human being that consists of a body and a soul and that soul is in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and meant to go to Him. And this is a special night that's like in every single moment that we pray there's an opportunity to be close to Allah. In every single moment that we raise our hands in dua there's an opportunity to be close to Allah. Every single moment that we give charity, there's an opportunity to become close to Allah. But in the night of Qadr, all of those opportunities are multiplied significantly more. So, but it's still the issue of the heart in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, this is number four is that there's later to Qadr. Number five is that the month has many other uh, acts of worship that are recommended in addition to the other things that we normally do. Right? So, you know, there's all the worship, but there's also like, we finish, we try to finish the Qur'an, we try to study the Qur'an, we can make i'tikaf, we can give charity, we can pray tarawih, we can help someone to break their fast, all these are going to come later. Uh, we can make umrah, all of these are extra acts of worship that have added merit in Ramadan. So this is another uh, extra component to the month of Ramadan. We're going to be taking breaks at 2.30 and 3.30, just so you know. So. You only have a few more minutes. Next section is on the Fala'al fala Psalm, the merits and the virtues of fasting. <coughs> you know, it's like uh, there's a lot of things when you live in the American Muslim community, you don't understand them until you leave them, until you leave it. You know, like when we were um, when we were here in San Diego, you know, my wife and I we were in college, and we said, you know, we really want to study Islam, and maybe we'll we'll start the dawn song after the break, inshallah. But we would say we want to study Islam. Sheikh Taha, mashallah, supported us and uh, actually opened the door for us to be able to do that, inshallah, in his mizan. And uh, but we had no idea what we were talking about. <laughs> you know, like you're 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 in America. You're a serious student. It means you got into a good university and you learned how to get good grades. It doesn't mean you're actually a serious student, right? A serious student in America is someone who gets good grades. It's not someone who studies twelve hours a day. Uh, I I did well in high school. I went to UCSD out of high school. I did well at UCSD. Nobody in UCSD was a Talib Ilm in the definition of like Islamic studies who was a Talib Ilm, student of knowledge, right? We don't even have a culture around it, we don't have an understanding of it. We think it's just like, you know, this religion, we just came to it, it should all be easy, everyone should just be the same, everyone should just know stuff, 
and we learn a little few things here and there and everyone's like, you know, they have all the knowledge. And it's not what it is. Like this, this stuff didn't reach us just like that. <laughs> this stuff reached us with serious effort. Uh, I'm not saying it to, to, as anything to any of you. I'm just saying this as a reflection on like when we're sitting here and I'm reading it, I'm just thinking about like, you know, you, you go to this country. We, we, we came to Egypt when, before, like when we got to Egypt, the internet was dial up. Smartphones didn't come until the end of our time in Egypt. So we were like the last group of students who went and didn't have social media, didn't have smartphones, all that kind of stuff. You know, we wanted to call home, we'd have to like use the dial-up thing, the connection would break, you know? We couldn't, even when we would try to get money, we couldn't get money, like the bank would work sometimes, it wouldn't work sometimes, you'd have to find someone coming, see if they can bring cash, like it was a, it was a mess. In Egypt, forget like people went to Mauritania and all these other places. And, you know, we get there and we're like, no study Islam. No idea even what we're talking about. Before, before we can do anything, we had to sit for a year, like literally a year, for five hours a day in class for Arabic and three to five hours of homework. That's it. No hadith, no Quran, no fiqh, no usul, no reminders. Can't, no, you just do Arabic all day, day in and day out, you know, for a long time. And you go to study and like you don't even, still, you don't know what you're talking about. One of the brothers who was studying there, he sat me down and he's like, Here's the whole lay of the land of Islamic studies. This is the Quran, this is what's attached to it. This is the hadith, this is what's attached to it. This is how you look at it. And you look at it, you're like, oh, that's what it means. Like, that's what it means to study Islam. There's all these disciplines, there's all this knowledge. There's this intellectual history that's over 1,400 years old, 1,300 years old, you know, depending on how you put the numbers. And, uh, and you see these people who spend their lives every single moment. Like there was one shaykh, we went to the, we used to go to the book fair with him. SubhanAllah, I don't know how we had that opportunity. We'd go to the book fair with him. In Egypt, the book fair is a big thing. The Ma'ad and Kitab in, in Cairo is a big, big deal. It's a huge festival of books. All the publishers are there, all of the people are there. The shaykh literally went from tent to tent all day long. Here's a tent, there's a thousand books in the tent. Look at all the titles. Oh, that one looks interesting. Take it out, read the table of contents, look at the index, put it back, decide if he's going to buy it or not, go to the next. For like eight hours straight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no break. No, no time out. No, like, let's get some food. Let's do this. Like, to the, to the point that he forgot we needed to pray. Like, he would, it's just not good, right? But he's, like, my point is, like, this is the level of, of, of you know, you meet people, Sheikh Rayyan, I thought of it because in the hadith that's coming, it says that the, the, there's a door in paradise that's called Ar-Rayyan, the door that the fasting people enter from. And one of the, the great scholars that we saw in Egypt who passed away last year, Allah was Shaykh Ahmed Taha Rayyan. And uh, he was Shaykh al-Malikiyya. He was like top Maliki scholar in Egypt and he was a top professor of Islamic law in Al-Azhar and many other universities. He was an advisor to Amja here in America, uh, the Fifth Council. Shaykh Rayyan, when he taught one book, in the Maliki school, it's over 300 lectures. One text, <laughs> over 300 lectures. It's an advanced text, right? Granted, it's an advanced text, but it's over 300 lectures. One subject, one school, one text, right? So like imagine, it's just, uh, you know, like we used to go to this one shape 
he used to sit and teach, and all the students were from Central Asia, actually, in that class. Most of them were bored. And the sheikh would come, he would sit, probably like over time. And he would go to Maghrib. There's no break except to pray. You just sit on the ground, and there's no entertainment. This is not like, these are not <laughs> entertainment sessions. You know what I mean? It's just like, they sit down, they read the text, word by word. And they break down every single word, so that you understand every single word. There's no, like, in-between here. You know? Uh, all I'm saying is that, like, these are things that I would have never understood. Like, even in the American Muslim community, you think seeking knowledge is like going to a weekend intensive. I'm not, again, I'm not, like, making fun of anyone. I'm not... I'm just saying, that's what we thought, you know, this, this is what you think. So, anyways, inshallah, after, after the break, we'll take like a 10 minute break, inshallah, until 2.40. And then at 2.40, we'll come back and we'll do Fadal and Salam and we'll continue from there. And I'll try to go a little bit faster because otherwise we're going to run out of time. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad alayhi wa sallam.